I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And should a storyteller's identity define what stories they're allowed to tell? Does our sex, race, or sexuality, just to name a few immutable markers, set the boundaries around either the fictions we can dream up or the non-fictions we investigate and explore? Is a documentary improved if a director's ethnicity matches that of her subjects? Our guest this week is speaking out against a worrying trend within her industry that says maybe storytelling would be better off if we simply kept to our own. Nadia Gill is the co-founder of Encompass Films, a documentary film company specializing in outdoor content. Her work has appeared on Netflix, Amazon Prime, the Smithsonian Channel, NBC Universal, and outside television. Nadia, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Well, I am very happy to have you. The heart of our conversation today will ultimately be the two essays you've written for Persuasion on the topics of representation and appropriation in filmmaking. But first, I'd love to learn more about how you first came to be a film producer. Now, you and your husband co-founded a production company called Encompass Films, which I mentioned in the intro. And on your about page, there's a story of how it all came to be, but it's told exclusively from your husband Dominic's point of view. He first encountered you in the I just realized I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this correctly, so you might have to help me here. He first encountered you in the Atacama Desert. Am I, am I saying that right? You are actually saying the Atacama Desert right, although we officially met in a small town called Uyuni, Bolivia, which is just on the eastern side of the desert. Ah, uh, okay. So you met in 2009 when he found you, quote, pondering why the hell she'd just become an attorney, end quote. So I'd love for you to take us through your journey over the last 12 years from a lawyer with potential buyer's remorse, to the successful film producer you are now. Yeah. Well, first, I want to say I do not have buyer's remorse about getting a law degree. I was one of those kids who was a poli-sci major. I went to NYU about, oh, I don't know, I graduated in 2002. So that was a while ago. And then I went into the fashion industry, as one does if, after being a political science major in New York for a little bit, and very quickly found that to be not very satisfying emotionally or intellectually. And I didn't know what to do. And I actually wanted to get a degree in creative writing. But I called my father up on the telephone and I said, Hey, Dad, I'm thinking of going back to school. And he said, Just tell me you're not going to get another bullshit degree. <laughs> and out of my mouth came the words, I'm going to law school. <laughs> And then I went to law school. And I actually really loved it. And I find it an incredibly intellectually nourishing way to think about the world. And even though I ended up not practicing the law, I still really valued really the things I learned and the way to understand how systems and structures really kind of dictate our understanding of life and how a lot of people have really good intuitions about what they think is right or wrong, but they have really poor understanding of how the social contract works and why they can or can't do something. And I've always really valued that. And even though I didn't practice law, when I met my husband in 2008 in Uyuni, Bolivia, I actually inherently understood that there was something about documentary storytelling that was similar that I appreciated. And it was about constructing your point of view, constructing arguments, and ultimately helping people understand how they relate to the world around them. And I found that to be really similar in what I liked about the law. Wow. Okay. Well, then 
why, to quote the about page, to quote, I guess if Dominic wrote this, why were you pondering why the hell you'd just become an attorney? Well, Dominic is one for telling a good story himself. So <laughs> Spinning a yarn, yeah. <laughs> spinning a yarn. So I think, he, you know, what he was really trying to say is maybe I wasn't so keen to be a corporate attorney mm. who billed hours and did white collar defense or something like that, which is what a lot of attorneys end up doing when they come out of law school. I don't think what he meant is that I didn't appreciate the education and what it means to be a lawyer in society. I just couldn't take that plunge. And a lot of that had to do with personal circumstances. My mother passed away when I was in law school, which was mm. really formative in my decision not to be an attorney. And I think he fundamentally understood that, you know, it wasn't a career path for me, but I just wanted to start and say, I'm so glad I went to law school and I, I wouldn't take that back at all. So thanks, dad. Yeah, I think that what you're speaking to seems very common amongst folks who wanted to become lawyers and went to law school. My ex went to law school and was a lawyer for a few years and became similarly disillusioned. She loved studying the law. She loved what the law stood for and how it could be used to better the lives of people who are often on the blunt end of the legal system, so to speak. But she similarly became kind of burnt out when she kind of got chewed up and spit out by the corporate law, which is a path that so many folks out of law school take. And I would go to these you know, cocktail parties with folks who were earning very good salaries, six-figure salaries, one or two years out of law school. And they would speak with a lot of resentment because I think that a lot of them felt like they'd been sold a bill of goods because of the reasons they first got interested in the law and how it was presented to them in law school was not translating to the real world once they were on the other side of the bar. Is that kind of what your experience was as well? I didn't even really get that far. I think I was one of the kids who went to law school that genuinely thought, well, maybe I won't be a lawyer, but this is going to be an interesting experience. And uh, even yeah. though it was tempting to be shepherded down the path of corporate law, I, I kind of just... I guess never really wanted it that much. And so for me, I didn't even get to the point. I, I practiced a little bit in the district attorney's office in LA, and I practiced a little bit of real estate law through the real estate crash. And I really didn't find my calling until I met Dominic and understood that I really loved the idea of making documentary films and that I could apply a lot of my understanding of how American systems work to um, the storytelling we were doing. That makes sense. Tell us a little bit more about your upbringing, everything that happened leading up to law school and meeting Dominic in Bolivia. Were there threads in your life that were kind of naturally drawing you to tell stories? What was the seed and when was it planted, so to speak, that took you down the path you're on now? Yeah, that's such a great question. I would say so I have a I'm from suburban Los Angeles, and I was raised in a mixed ethnicity, middle class household. And with people who believed that I could do whatever I wanted, but maybe didn't seriously encourage me to explore a wide range of things. And so I think I got, you know, the right lesson in terms of shooting for the stars and reaching your dreams. But I don't think I envisioned the breadth of what was possible for my life. And so what I understood very clearly was study hard, go to college, get a job, and you'll be okay. And I appreciate my parents for that solid footing that they gave me. But I definitely didn't have an exploration of the arts that I understood very early in life. I did know that I really enjoyed 
sociology, cultural studies, politics. I think I understand, I loved philosophy. I love English literature. And so I studied a bunch of those things, but I never saw myself as, say, a writer. Maybe the closest I could say is that I early on, I thought, well, I'd like to write, maybe I'd like to be a journalist to some degree, but I did not pursue that. Instead, I pursued the law. And nothing really came to me until really Dominic introduced me to the arts and craft of making documentary films. And even then I saw myself as kind of like a, you know, on the producer side, which is less about storytelling and more about getting a story made. And over time I grew into a storyteller myself and I understood the connections between the stories that I was actually telling as a lawyer, the ability to craft a narrative, to persuade somebody to see your point of view. And the fact that those would be the same techniques that you would use in documentary storytelling, but with an added visual aid and an added understanding of like, maybe your tool range was bigger than they would allow you in the law. I think that's a very astute observation about the connections between being a lawyer and being a filmmaker and linking it back to my own experience. The person I I dated for many years who I've, I've spoken about on this podcast, she went from being a lawyer to being a creative writer and she'd always had that passion before. But I I think your comment about how in law you have to kind of take the disparate threads of your client's story of their biography and link them to whatever they're being represented for, whether they're the defendant or the plaintiff, because in law, we're not robots, right? And the emotional backstory and all of the things that led up to a person who is being suspected of a crime, let's say, um, or is in a courtroom period, all of those things factor in to how the jury or the judge considers a potential sentence. So I, I never really thought of it in that way, but I think you're you're spot on. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, it's more obvious when you watch some sort of crime drama about, you know, a district attorney gets up there and he lays his story before the court and they do a big yarn and the opening and closing statements, which don't even relate that much to, you know, (laughs) the specifics that the jury has to decide the case on. But maybe it's a little less obvious and kind of civil dramas. But I would say, nonetheless, the feature is there. The lawyer's job is to convince you of his client's story. Yeah. Well, you know, this takes us, I think, pretty well into Encompass Films. And Encompass Films, the company that you co-founded with your husband, Dominic, has done commercial work for many well-known brands, including, just to name a few, Reebok, Red Bull, Hendrix Gin, Marvel Studios, Microsoft, you know, these little mom and pop independent companies, the list goes on. But your your independent work, separate from your commercial work, um, and even your commercial work is infused with what I think can best be described as a social justice through line. In 2020, you released a short documentary for Black Diamond Climbing Gear called Soul Deep, which looks at Memphis Rock's climbing gym and the rising popularity of rock climbing among the black residents of Memphis. Another piece entitled Climbing Out of Disaster follows a group of local Puerto Rican climbers in the wake of the 2017 Category 5 Hurricane Maria, or Last Call for the Bayou, which chronicles the lives of people as they grapple with the erosion of Louisiana's wetlands. So what draws you, and Dominic, I suppose, to telling these stories, and what have you learned as you've seen the world through the eyes of so many people unlike yourselves? Yeah, so these stories are really a joint force between Dominic and myself. And Dominic, who if people don't know by now, is my husband and my film partner. So when I met him, we 
he basically had started his career as an environmental biologist and an outdoor athlete just as a hobbyist. But when he entered documentary filmmaking, you know, he chose those domains as the area that he would focus his energy and attention as a filmmaker on. And when I met him, I saw what he was doing, but I felt like it was missing a component. Our field of outdoor films has been largely very white. And that has changed a lot over the years. But 10 years ago, when I entered the space, it was a lot about hairy chested men who were trying to climb Everest or clip reels of snowboarders doing amazing tricks. And really, at the end of the day, I just felt like maybe there was a world of stories in which people in the outdoor industry had not tapped into yet. That included more diverse peoples, more diverse backgrounds, more social issues, different ways to understand the relationship of action sports to you know, our social experiences. And some of that have been done in mainstream sports for a long time. I mean, there's never a shortage of good sports stories that don't tell you something deeper about humanity. And HBO's 30 for 30 is such a prime example of that. It just wasn't really being applied to the action sports filmmaking cohort. And so I identified that early on and just you know, Dominic and I sat down and one thing that he already had going for him is he was really into cycle touring, which was, it was a slow form of filmmaking that took place over a period of time. And he would invite people to join him in cycle touring and tell their stories. And he cycled all over the world. And so he was deeply interested in um, other cultures and other human experiences. And it was a natural extension of what he was doing for us to turn around and say, oh, well, how can we apply this to surfing? How can we apply it to skiing? How can we apply it to kayaking? And and really dig in there and find these stories that maybe represented so much more than just the sport would have it seem. Yeah. And I think that that is important for you to call out for two reasons. One, I think it adds a layer to the essays of yours that we're about to discuss. I mean, already just your background as someone of Egyptian Mexican heritage, I think, and this is almost a commentary what I'm saying on the very problem that you discuss. But I think that it is relevant that in your essays for persuasion, in which you talk about the need for diversity of viewpoint, but not limiting someone to only tell stories that are specific to their own background, I think that why your background is important in you writing those essays is that one, it's kind of a shield against <laughs> criticism of, oh, you know, this is just white people complaining, et cetera, et cetera. But more importantly than that, is the fact that you acknowledge, and I do as well, that there has been a problem in documentary filmmaking and filmmaking writ large for most of its history in that it privileged, and I know that that can be a dirty word in some circles, it prioritized kind of a single kind of narrative, which was usually white, right? And I think that there is a big difference between finding the universal in the specific, which is the kind of filmmaking that you and Dominic are doing, and I think the kind of filmmaking that is ascendant right now, which is great, and making one narrative universal, which is how it has historically so often been, right? It's like everything is told through the lens of a white dude. And, you know, look, I'm not going to complain as a white guy. There are a lot of fantastic movies that have come out. I'm a big fan of Indiana Jones and, and other fantastic movies starring white dudes. But I think that there is a distinction between what you write about in your essays, which we're going to get to in a second, which is talking about how anyone should be able to tell any story, which I think is great. And it speaks to the universal truth that you and Dominic seek in your films. And it's not in conflict with the idea that there has not been enough representation generally of quote unquote, non-white communities. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I would say for me, the distinction is identity can be important to storytelling. I just don't think it's the end all be all to decide who is the best person to make a story. And I think people often read my essays and think that what I'm arguing is that it wouldn't matter what your previous experience or point of view is to the story that you tell. I think that it is absolutely essential to understand that anyone's perspective is going to be colored by a myriad of lenses that relate to their personal experiences, whether those are identity related or just, you know, life experience. I just find that if you assume to know what those experiences are and how they're going to provide a distinct lens that you think will be true, you might end up being wrong in that assumption. And so it's better not to cut people off at the knees and say, oh, only this person can make this film or only that person can make a film because humans will surprise you in their point of view and they will surprise you in the lessons they picked up along the way in life to be able to interpret you know, the world. And so I just think the distance between where a lot of people sit, where they recognize that representation is important and that more stories of underrepresented groups not only need to be told, but also underrepresented people need to be telling them from behind the camera is not that far from where I sit. I'm just drawing the line in a slightly different place in order to ensure that we're not hampering our discussion of the wealth of perspectives that can be out there. Yeah. And let's jump right into those essays so that the listeners can kind of get caught up a little bit on what we're talking about. So the two essays you've written for Persuasion, the titles are framed as questions, Decolonize the Documentary and Who Are You to Tell That Story? I find that they're different in substance, but similar in theme that all people, as we just discussed, should be allowed to tell whatever stories they wish. And that indeed, as you've said, outsider perspectives can shed new light and uncover new truths within well-worn narratives. So let's start with your first essay that you wrote for Persuasion, which is Decolonize the Documentary. In it, you say, quote, a growing number of filmmakers, writers, musicians, and journalists now argue that certain truths can be understood only by those who have experienced them. Even though I'm a Mexican-Egyptian female documentarian and am sympathetic to reasoning behind such ideas, I cannot accept this new approach, which has created an increasingly difficult professional environment for those of us who do not agree, end quote. And I want to talk a little bit about that last part of the sentence. Can you talk to us about how you came to write this essay and what you've experienced in the film industry that personally influenced you to write it? Yeah, so... I've got one foot in the classic documentary film industry, and I've got one foot in the kind of commercial world. And that leaves me just enough space, I think, to be able to see what's happening, but not necessarily feel so personally affected by it that maybe I'm scared to speak up in a certain way. And I think that led me to observing a lot of restrictions or frameworks or guideposts or however people want to say these euphemisms to basically restrict who can tell a story. And I just was feeling really not great about it. It was really not, I didn't think it aligned with a lot of my personal beliefs about free expression, about art, about truth. I understood where they were coming from in terms of trying to uplift certain groups of people and give them an opportunity to share their version of the truth, because it can be very difficult to fight for air in a limited marketplace. But 
nonetheless, I was seeing a lot of grant applications. I was even seeing a lot of calls for actual like streaming platforms and film festivals to even once the film was done, possibly restricted on the basis of who made the film instead of judging it on whether or not the film contained truths or accuracies or was worthy on the merit of its art. And I want to be clear, I saw calls for those things. That doesn't mean they've been implemented already in our community, but the very calls to then add another layer of scrutiny and restriction from within the gatekeepers really just made me feel like, hey, I feel like this is a bridge too far. I was really sympathetic and understanding of, let's say, the affirmative action policies of like lifting people up through the grant system of, you know, trying to diversify consciously and intentionally diversify your cohort of filmmakers at a festival. I think all of those were really great endeavors. They're well-intentioned, they're promising, and they were effective. And it wasn't until I really started seeing too many restrictions on who could actually tell a story and where those restrictions were being asked to come into effect that I said, you know what, actually, this is too much for me. And I mostly wrote it because no one else was saying it. So you would draw the line between what you just mentioned, which is grants that lift people up to be able to tell stories that they otherwise wouldn't be able to tell and negatively saying, you're not able to tell this story because of who you are. Yeah. And like, just like when we talk about free speech on YouTube or monetization, there's different levels of like, really what's happening. Like, you're not being restricted from making a film just because someone doesn't want to grant give you money to make it, you know? And so I guess for me, it really wasn't so bad to kind of see affirmative programming that maybe favored certain groups that needed to have a little bit of a lift. But it bothered me when it seemed like the next step was to shut down the ability for films that were made to be seen because they were made by the wrong person. And there were a couple of incidences that seemed like we were moving towards that direction, and and that bothered me. Well, let's talk about how that kind of ties into something that you write later in the essay. Quote, were I making a film about a Mexican-Egyptian protagonist, I would be no more qualified to do so than my white filmmaker husband, at least not simply on the basis of my ethnic heritage, end quote. And I guess as a follow-up to what you just said, I would say, why not, right? As a hypothetical question. And if your husband would be qualified to tell that story, right? If I'm playing devil's advocate, couldn't folks on the other side of this conversation that we're having say it's only because he's lived and loved alongside you for more than a decade? I guess I'm just, if we're steel manning, right? If we're steel manning, I think a, a topic that you and I agree on, what would you say to people who would say that? That if it came down to offering a grant to either a hypothetical you or a hypothetical man who has the biography of your husband, right? Let's say that we're talking about two individuals who aren't married, let's say, and they're both competing for a grant about a documentary about a hypothetical Mexican-Egyptian woman who they want to make a film about. Why not choose someone like you over your husband? Well, I think you actually asked two different questions. So I'll answer the obvious one first. I mean, sure. first, I have no problem whatsoever if a grant organization finds, you know, the point of view of somebody who has that quote unquote lived experience themselves to be, you know, more persuasive in the application and wants to fund it. I also have no problem with grant applications having specific grants that are, you know, for certain cohorts of filmmakers trying to you know, make sure that they have a sense of intentionality about diversifying the space. I think all that's great. 
I would be interested to see blind grants actually where there would be no names and no boxes that you fill and nothing but maybe your perspective on how you were going to make the film and whether or not that your version of it was appealing in the grant system. I'd just be point blank curious because I think we should be looking inside the grant. Like the four corners of the document will tell you a lot about whether or not a filmmaker is equipped to tell that story, what their perspective is, how they're going to go about it, whether or not they're digging deep enough, whether or not they have enough access, if their relationships are good enough, if their point of view is developed because of previous experience. So I think the grant application can actually tell you a lot. The deeper question, which I think you asked in, in regards to steel manning, the quote that you just read from my article is, you know, why am I not better to tell the story of a Mexican Egyptian protagonist than my husband, my white husband? And the best thing I can say is I could be better, but could be doesn't mean am. And I think that's an important distinction. And ultimately, what I'm saying is there's a host of other traits that make someone a good filmmaker besides their identity. And I could be a completely, you know, just obtuse and narrow Egyptian Mexican person who I could be self-hating. I could be maybe not that integrated with my community. I could be more of an outsider than some would like to see. There's a number of reasons why if you just look at one's ancestry or heritage, you might come up short with whether or not they are the best person to make the film. And so the distinction that I was trying to make is it was not on the grounds of ethnicity alone, not that ethnicity could never be part of something that would make you a good person to do it. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm totally sympathetic to your view here. And I, I think just to yes and you, I think why this recent push is so fraught is that it's kind of a funhouse mirror version of the myth of whiteness, right? Like if I can expand on that a little more. Whiteness, right, says that I am more qualified to tell the story. And I grew up in Northern California, in the Bay Area. I'm the child of Armenian and Irish descendants from 100 and 170 years ago, respectively. Whiteness says that I can better tell the story of a wealthy Anglo-Saxon white wasp in Connecticut, some blue blood. I'm better equipped to do that than I am to tell, let's say, hypothetically, the story of a Mexican-American living on a border town in Texas, right? And that's a myth, right? Because in many ways, like I am as dissimilar or as similar to either one of those people. And I think this call of you are better prepared to tell the story of a Mexican Egyptian protagonist, let's say, whether in a documentary or in a fictional film, plays into that same myth, but with a progressive gloss on it. Because as you said, there's so many other aspects to our lives. There's the socioeconomic status, there's where you grew up, there's the cultural underpinnings, right? I mean, like I said, my Armenian relatives came here 100 years ago. So when I moved to Los Angeles, it was a huge culture shock because a lot of the Armenians living here, the Armenians I live among right now in my neighborhood, are first and second generation. They're either from Armenia or they were born here to Armenian immigrant parents. And culturally, I am not that similar to them because why would I be? My Armenian ancestors came over here in 1920. It was my great-grandmother who came and, you know, she passed away when I think I was like 10 or 11 years old. So this idea that someone who, like me, 
does not speak the language, did not grow up in an Armenian community, that I am better equipped to tell a story of someone of Armenian descent in Los Angeles than, let's say, a Guatemalan American who grew up in a predominantly Armenian community in North Hollywood is insane. It's as insane as the myth that says that a white person in one part of the country can tell the story of another white person 3,000 miles away because they're both white. Yeah. But actually, if we're going to continue steel manning their argument, I think that that is why they, and my second article picks up on a language change. I think that's happened over time. That is why they are using the phrase from within communities, because I actually think, so I think the documentary community, the storytelling community is generally extremely well-intentioned. And what they're trying to do is remedy a lopsided storytelling narrative that has gone on for generations because they've been constantly framed by people who haven't been through what they've been through, right? And I, I use they obviously loosely here. And I think what they're trying to do is say like, well, if you're from inside the community, they're using that word more loosely now because like, you know, you could be Eminem who's from within the community. Like there's, I don't think they necessarily want to reduce it to your identity. However, I also think reducing it to your identity is kind of shorthand because they don't have the resources, the time or the understanding to always do a qualitative analysis of whether or not you are equipped to make that story. So they kind of use identity as a shorthand for some assumptions that they want to make or that they're willing to make to make these quick, short, you know, and fast decisions about what's good and what's not good. And I just think you can make a lot of errors in that. And so why subject yourself to errors when we're living in a world that more than one film can be made on the same subject, and you might get two great films, and one film might require an outsider's perspective, and that's what they're bringing to the table to bring enlightenment, and the others might be an insider's, and they can both bring enlightenment on a subject, they can both bring wisdom. And it's like, they keep wanting to restrict the idea because stereotyping has really hurt communities. And I think we understand that. I just think that their solutions might not lead to the outcomes that they actually want anymore because they're going to be missing a lot of wisdom and they're going to be missing a lot of intuitive perspectives that can inform and really help people relate across cultures and across boundaries and build bridges. I just think they forego a lot of that by... Uh, thinking that the assumption on that you're from within the community will fundamentally make the story truer. Yeah, I completely agree. And before we get to Chloe Zhao and your second essay, I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of real history within documentary filmmaking that kind of proves out the point that I think a lot of folks are making, I think rightly, and I think you would agree here. You say in your essay, quote, cinematic history has harmed certain communities, and we do need a more socially inclusive cohort of storytellers. Any truth that a filmmaker uncovers will, to some degree, reflect the filmmaker's own culture, language, and ideas. It often matters who is documenting a story, end quote. And so to better ground our listeners, right, who might not all be familiar with a large catalog of documentaries, what are some examples of filmmaking, if you don't mind, what are some examples of filmmaking that you feel may have potentially missed the mark because of a viewpoint blind spot? And how has a uh, a wider diversity of filmmakers over the last couple decades helped the industry overall? Well, just so that I don't have to have a really long time of, you know, <laughs> quietness while I think of all the documentary films, I think the number one thing that happens is a lot of negative stereotyping. And I'll just, mm -hmm. you know, I'll refer to 
the two stereotypes which have affected me the most personally over time. And, you know, as a Mexican and Egyptian, the two stereotypes which you often see in a film are in terms of Arabs, you know, being terrorists or Mm -hmm. some sort of insane, socially conservative, female-hating version of a man. And the other will be, if you're Mexican, you know, maybe a drug or gang-related stereotype. And I think that those are pervasive in film and television. And even when you have really good content that actually acknowledges the complexity of those types of characters, sometimes that's all that we've seen in terms of like representation of various ethnicities. All you see is this kind of stereotype and that reinforces society's limited view of them as whole and holistic humans. And I think writing has gotten better and better over time. And so even sometimes those stereotypes can be more nuanced when they do appear in a film. But I just think a lot of people are tired of it. They just want to see more subversive characters who kind of help you into the window of what it might be really like to live there. A great example is the television show Rami on Netflix, which Mm, is about an Egyptian American. And it's a really interesting television show, which helps you understand both the stereotypes, but also that the stereotypes are one facet of the culture. And that's really spoken to me as an Egyptian American. And I think it's written by an Egyptian and it's produced by an Egyptian. And so it really does help see the point of view of people who want to advance more storytelling from within communities, because it is very multifaceted. I think the thrust of my article is never to say, There is no point to what the other side is trying to tell you. No, there is a great point to what they're trying to tell you. They're telling you that we want a world full of rich and varied storytelling and that we think for a long time we have lacked that. My only fear is when I see it entrenched in as a restriction, as a requirement. Like, I think... They have a persuasive argument. Continue with the persuading of it. Don't try and create a framework or a, you know, gatekeeping effect to say, if you made this film and you're an outsider, that automatically means that it's not going to be a value. And it's just a little bit of a different way to understand that one can have a point, but if they take that point too far, they might end up doing more harm than good. Yes. Don't keep people out. Let more people in. Yeah, I completely agree. Before we transition to your next essay, I think a relevant question that will help get us there is what you've kind of touched on is the importance of outsiders' perspectives for documentaries as well. And I think you speak so eloquently about this in your first essay, Decolonize the Documentary. So what are some of your favorite documentary films? Not to put you on the spot again, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask because I genuinely want to know. What are some of your favorite documentary films who were made by filmmakers who don't share the backgrounds of their subjects? Well, I love a documentary film called Babies, which is a French team that actually looked at the cultures, five different cultures, and how they raise their children between zero and one years old. Oh, actually, yes. I think I've it's between I think it's between when they're born and when they take their first steps. And I think it's so observational in nature, it actually feels almost like it could be ethnographic, even though it really isn't. I just appreciate the subtlety with which they apply the exact same framework to every culture, which is just to see these really simple ways in which the parents relate to the child, the child relates to the world, and then apply it across multiple cultures and weave it into one film to kind of come up with a story about how 
the kids are all right. You know what I mean? It doesn't really matter if you're raised in Namibia or Japan or Sweden. Parents love their kids. Kids mostly don't die and they're managed to be raised pretty well. And they engage with the world, you know, and I think it's a really interesting look at the way that that would not be able to be made today under the standard that you have to live within the community because it's profiling so many different communities, really to show you the similarities across the experience, even though the cultural applications are extremely different. So I think that's one that I love, you know, not to continue on with the same people that I referenced in that decolonize the documentary article. But the filmmakers who I referred to in that article, Matthew Heineman, made it and what I love is a film called Cartel Land about oh, it's great. a lot of why narcocultura is potentially attractive. And if not narcocultura, at least opportunity related to the drug industry in Mexico, which I'm not sure. I think that film could be made by an insider or an outsider, but I don't think that he was any less sensitive to really understanding why that was an attractive life path for some people or why they fell into it. And I also really loved how he, you know, the heroes of that journey were not white saviors tropes. They were other community members within you know, Mexican states that took matters into their own hands and wanted to come up with a way to deal with the dangers of having the drug industry in your community. And I just, I thought it was really well done. It's gotten a lot of negative criticism in the past couple of years, but when it first came out, it received almost zero negative criticism. And I'm not sure if people just have gone back with a more critical lens or if some people always felt this and they just, you know, didn't have the voices raised to say it. But for me personally, as a Mexican, I did not feel at all like somehow he was doing my culture a disservice and promoting harmful stereotypes. I thought he was really digging into why the drug culture actually performs reasonably well and how citizens actually have to band together to fight against it. They can't always wait for you know, the government or the United States to come solve their problems. They need to figure it out themselves. And I thought it was a great film. Yeah, both those films are phenomenal. The three that come to mind as I'm hearing you talking that really resonated with me, which were made by quote unquote outsiders. One was called Whore's Glory, which was evocative title there, but it's a documentary made by an Austrian filmmaker that follows prostitution in three different countries, Thailand, Bangladesh, and Mexico, mm. which was just phenomenal. There's one called The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer, which is about the kind of, I guess you could call it a, a genocide that happened in Indonesia in the 1960s against communists and ethnic Chinese. And last, one that I just, I can't recommend it enough to people because it's heartbreaking. It's really economical with its filmmaking. Funny at times, it's called Cutie and the Boxer mm. about a, a Japanese couple mm-hmm. who made art in the 70s and 80s and even today in New York City. All of these films were made by documentarians who did not in the slightest share the background of the folks that they documented. And yeah, I just, one of the reasons I, I just so resonated with both of your essays and why I think this conversation is so important. And I'm so grateful for you writing them, especially considering you are in the film industry right now, is that I just, at the heart of it, I think that this kind of identity epistemology is wrong because I think it would deprive us of so many fantastic works, not just to name the ones that you named and the ones that I just named, but the list is very long. And while I understand the concern and the fear that subjects will be approached with a kind of disrespect or ignorance, we should judge the films on a case-by-case basis in terms of how sensitive or insensitive 
the subjects are being treated, not just assume naturally that someone who is of that background is going to be the best person to tell that story. That's exactly right. And I really wish like a lot of what I want to say is like, bring back the art of critique, man. Listen, if somebody completely tanks because they shouldn't have made a film because they didn't have the range or the depth, call them out. I have no problem with film criticism. I think it's a wonderful art that is incredibly nuanced and varied and that a lot of attention is paid when film critics think about and digest a film. And I think there's plenty of room for continuing to correct or make corrections in, in industrial errors through the art of film criticism. I also just think that the assumptions that you make about who a person is before they make the film are just not as apparent as after. And it's it's really hard to make a film. I mean, so many things go wrong anyways in it. And it's like, sometimes it's your access, sometimes it's your point of view. So I just, I do think it is really difficult. And I don't want to cut people off at the knees before they've even made a film to say like, oh, you have nothing worthwhile to say about this topic. I just, I just don't think that's true. I think people of all identity stripes have something to contribute to every topic. Yes, I think the most important quality of a filmmaker, whether it's a documentarian or someone who makes fiction films, is humility, which I think takes us perfectly into Chloe Zhao, who is the main subject of your second essay, Who Are You to Tell That Story? You centered around Zhao and her recent Oscar win for Best Director for Nomadland, which is about a woman in her 60s, a white woman specifically, who embarks on a journey through the American West after losing everything during the Great Recession. And as you write, quote, Nomadland is her third successive film that focuses on life in the American West. On the surface, Zhao has little in common with her protagonists, who include a pair of Native American siblings struggling with life on a reservation, a rodeo cowboy recovering from a traumatic brain industry, end quote, and of the recently awarded Nomadland. You later write, quote, the very thing that makes Zhao such an interesting filmmaker is the steady hand she brings to films whose protagonists experience a world wholly unlike her own, end quote. And you and I have been talking about this during our conversation. This thesis feels very of a piece thematically with your first essay, which I think is intentional. So what drove you to write this piece? And what did you feel was left unsaid that needed to be spoken to here in this essay? Well, when I wrote the first piece, I got a lot of criticism within the field. And I listened to some of it, and I was observing it. And one common theme that came out was that a lot of people assumed I was writing the piece to protect my white husband or my white friends or white interests. And I kept explaining to them, like, no, I'm doing it to protect my interests, myself. I want to be able to comment on or explore topics unrelated to my own identities. And I think I have, you know, an analytical mind and a compassionate heart and a, you know, I think I'm a good listener. And I think that when I engage with a topic, I'm open and I'm raw. And I think that those are great qualities to make a critical assessment and make a documentary. And I just I thought that people never really got that. What when I wrote the first article, I wasn't doing it in defense of white people, I was doing it in defense of myself. And so I'd been thinking about Chloe Zhao a couple months before the Oscar nominations. And I thought, you know, here's an example 
that can help people understand that I'm not talking about white people. I'm talking about ourselves. That the logical conclusion of the idea that you cannot make a film about something you have not personally lived through is that the only person you can make a film about is yourself. And I would never make a film about myself anyways, because I would find that a form of narcissism and I would eschew that. But I couldn't understand how people didn't see that if you inverted the requirement that you would be harming yourself as a filmmaker. And so I wanted to use Chloe's story to really to illustrate that in a way that was very public and that was very easy to understand. Yes. And I think to yes and you here, you wrote the essay not just to protect yourself, which I think of course makes sense. I think you wrote it to protect art. Yeah. Going back to the documentaries that we both named, all made by outsiders, right? I think it's okay to selfishly want to protect good art and to want good art to be propagated continuously and to not be limited because this is going to be hyperbolic. But if you'll allow me the hyperbole, the best art usually comes out of the freest societies because the art that is restricted by you know societies that place restrictions on expression, the people who suffer are the artists who are not allowed to tell the stories that they truly want to tell. And yeah, it's, it's just frustrating to me because again, it's a funhouse mirror version of what has happened for so long. I imagine you probably have stories either within your own life or that you've heard from friends about how things used to work in the past for artists of color. It's a common trope now. Thankfully, it's beginning to fade away. But I have heard stories about people in the past, in the you know 80s, 90s, even you know up through the early 2010s, where someone, a writer, a filmmaker of color would want to tell a story either about their own personal ethnic background or outside of it, but that maybe didn't hue closely enough to, I guess, for lack of a better word, hyper exotic version of whatever their background was, and have their work turned down, or their project rejected, because the potential client just didn't feel like, oh, well, you know, you're Chinese. So I don't really feel like your story feels that Chinese to me. And I feel like if you leaned in more to that piece, it would be more accessible to our readers. Or they would go the other way. They'd be like, this story is too ethnic for our audience. And if you maybe adjusted it in such a way where the person who's reading it could more readily access it, maybe we would accept your book, right? For too long, there have been all these guardrails that have been put around artists of color, either because their work isn't exotic, quote unquote, enough, or because it is, quote, too exotic. And I feel like we have to acknowledge the past to understand where our current present could lead because so many artists have experienced it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, you're absolutely right about, you know, the various boxes that they try and stick people in. And I always say this, the ultimate sign of equality is that we are able to do exactly what everyone else does. And I think that sometimes there's an inverse understanding of that. And so it's like, well, if artists of color don't have the opportunity to tell any story they want, then we will restrict white artists to, you know, certain stories in order to kind of level the playing field. But I actually just don't want to restrict anybody. I want people to feel free to explore the universe and to put their soul on, you know, a painting or a music album or a documentary or, you know, whatever art form it takes. And if it's bad, we'll trash it. And if it, hopefully we trash it, not in an ad hominem way, but like in a way with thoughtful critique that says, maybe you shouldn't have done this, or you should have thought this through. But I think that that is the actual framework that we should take when thinking about art, let people make things. And then 
critique them. And hopefully our critiques, our art is as thoughtful and our critiques are as thoughtful as we can be. And together we can learn some things about life. And I think that I've been saying there's just to a lot of my cohort that does not agree with me about this because they're very focused on, you know, equity and equality and raising up marginalized voices that, you know, if that was the only value that I had, I would agree with you 100%. But I don't just have one value. I have multiple values. And sometimes those values are intention with each other. And right now, another value that's intention with the manner and method that BIPOC documentary filmmakers are seeking in our industry is truth gathering, truth telling and wisdom art. And I just don't believe that that comes from one set of people on one subject. I think it's always going to be you need all hands on deck, you need all eyes and you hope that someone says something finally valuable that we can take as a little nugget and keep going. Yes. I mean, I think it comes down to a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. And what I keep hearing from you over and over again, which I think is the right way to go is the abundance mindset. The idea that like we don't have to think that there's only a set amount of pie and it's a scramble for who gets to eat it. I think we can go from the perspective of let a million pies be baked, you know? Like let more people have more opportunities and as you said, uh, judge films independently, judge works of art in general independently as they stand by whoever made them on their merits rather than gatekeeping. It's frustrating to me to hear that there has been, whether you call it conflict or disagreement between you and your peers, because I really don't feel like your perspective is at odds with theirs at all. You're not arguing against increased representation. You are, in fact, in many ways, arguing for more representation than they are because you are saying, I want what you want and I want more. Yeah. I mean, I understand where they're coming from. It's a competitive field documentary. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to be a filmmaker. It's a struggle. And I think sometimes the struggle gets you down so much that you just want anything to make the path a little easier. And if it's someone to come and say, I'm choosing you because I know that you are the right person to tell the story, because now I have this framework that says you're the right person to tell that story. Well, maybe it will make it a little easier for them than it used to be before. And I do think there is a mindset of scarcity. And it's not from nowhere. It's pitching Netflix is almost impossible. And you're thinking, oh, whenever somebody's making a similar film to you, you're definitely thinking, oh, they only have room for one. They only have room for one. And I'm not sure that that's true. I think that might have been true when there was less networks, less streamers, less channels. I think most good ideas have more than one person that are trying to approach them in documentary and in every other art form. If it's an idea worth wrestling, the chances are you're going to have more than one person who wants to make a film about it. And the chances are they're going to be considerably different because people aren't identical and they don't do the exact same things. And making films is a wildly creative process with different outcomes. So I talk about that a little bit in my first piece with just the Fire Festival documentaries. And they were two different major networks put out them. They seem similar on the outside, but when you watch them, they were considerably different. People then talked about them. They argued about them. Do I think that's going to happen every week? No. But do I think it's possible? And do I think the landscape is broad enough? Yeah. Or, you know, if it was two years ago, you could have a similar film two years later and the public is ready to digest it. Or a great example is... I think five films about the Syrian civil war came out in the same year. I think at least two of them, maybe three of them were nominated for an Oscar. Some were made by outsiders. Some were made by insiders. 
that was interesting. And I just, I think there's more room than people. Yeah. Okay. I think I have a little bit more of an abundance mindset, but I do understand the instinct for feeling it's scarce. And I'm, I don't want to shame people for reacting that way or understanding how that could possibly impact whose story will end up being bought or being told or who gets the money to make the story. I just don't think it's that productive. Yeah. I think it's a distinction between when it comes to identity, not wanting to be dismissed because of who you are, but not wanting to be limited by who you are immutably, right? In your first essay, you write, quote, I personally identify far more with my sense of reason and my moral value system than with my racial makeup or my gender, end quote. And I imagine that isn't you saying that you are ashamed of either one of those things or that you don't connect with those things more or less than any of the rest of us do. It's just that, again, just to go back to history, for too long, you would have been limited by those things. And I think, again, you're just arguing not to be limited by those same things. Again, it's, I think why this frustrates me so much, Nadia, is that what you are arguing for, and I would join you in this argument, is it's thematically of the same, what's the word I'm looking for? It's thematically of the same thrust of arguing against the problems of the past. Wanting someone not to be limited in their opportunities by who they are was the thing that got us to where we are today. And wanting to continue that, I think, is in that same spirit. That is exactly how I feel. And I've been saying this to some friends lately, that the majority of my life, I would look over at the right and I would say, don't put me in a box just because I'm a Mexican, Egyptian woman, whatever, right? And now, strangely, I'm now looking over at the left and being like, don't put me in a box. Like, it's the same instinct to not have people view your identity as the determinative factor in who you are, not that your identity isn't part of who you are, just that it it doesn't come with assumptions. Yes. And I'm glad you said that because you are touching on something that is very important in our current discourse around identity, whether it's about filmmaking or otherwise. I think what is muddying the waters in a lot of our left-right discussions right now is that there's a lot of people who are on either side of the aisle who, irrespective of their normal politics, find common ground in how they personally want to be considered in regard to their identity. And it's a common theme on this podcast. And I don't think it is either left or right, but I think it is being boxed into a left-right dichotomy erroneously when it isn't. I think that what you can really whittle this down to is people who, like you and I, and I think probably the majority of people, don't want to be labeled or boxed in by people on the right or the left by their immutable characteristics. And importantly, not seeing those immutable characteristics as a point of shame or as something they don't want. There is a very important distinction between those two things, and oftentimes it gets conflated. I would not be surprised if someone of the progressive bent, let's say, hearing you talk and immediately jumping to the fact of, oh, well, you know, I'm not even going to repeat all the potential stupid, idiotic things that could be said, right? Because we all know them. They're said on Twitter all the time about people of color who want to be seen as more than the sum of their parts, or white people, right? Anyone of any background wanting to be seen as more than the sum of who they are and who they are born into. And I just, it frustrates me so much because it is put into a left-right dichotomy, which is just not the case. I wish we could just talk to one another as individuals and respect all of our own backgrounds and realize that that can transcend politics. And yes, we can talk about taxation and housing density and all the other things that we could all get into arguments about. But identity and how we want to be identified is 
different from politics, but I find it so often gets boxed into that. And then you're labeled right or left, depending on how you want to self-identify. And it's frustrating. There's defectors on all sides now because people agree with you and they just look around and they think, this is not what I'm about anymore. And I used to be able, like, I don't know, I've been a Democrat since 2002. So I don't know, that's 18 years, right? And that's a long road to self-identify as a liberal and a Democrat. And for the first time in my life, I'm creating space for the possibility that that might not always be the case, but not necessarily because I'm attracted to what's going on on the other side, just because it just doesn't seem to be where I am anymore. And I don't, I'm not on the right and I'm not on the left. And I think a lot of the culture war is doing that because when people are talking about what matters, there's like a group of people that are like, I'm not sure that's what matters. And I think people understand the instinct to dig into, you know, your lived experience, your history and say, no, 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 you've been ignoring that for a long time. And I'm going to tell you what that means now. But at the same time, I just think maybe it's not as functional. I'm sorry, this whole answer is terrible. And I'm not sure how to answer really the left right dichotomy other than to say, I agree with you. I think the left right dichotomy is not a productive understanding of the way that people are feeling right now in society. And I think a lot of people are looking for alternative ways to understand what is happening. That is so well said. I think that feeling is there for a lot of people, which I think is attracting people to all kinds of, and I hate this word because it's so overused now, but heterodox media, right? Whether it's my little podcast or other shows on YouTube, other podcasts, other forms of media that are speaking to this, right? Because I think people are, they are feeling what you and I are feeling. I've been voting Democrat basically just around the same amount of time as you have, a couple of years after. And I think people are beginning to question their political allegiance, not because anything about them politically has inherently changed, but that they're uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric around issues of identity that in many ways is disconnected from politics, but has been merged with it. What rights you do or don't want for your fellow citizens? Again, what you want the tax rates to be, how you want the drug war prosecuted, or if you want it abolished, how much you want to fund police and teachers and all the other myriad issues, right? Choice, guns, etc. that would identify someone as, you know, quote, left or right, again, are largely separate from the issues of identity that are now beginning to consume. I think first the left and in many ways now in an even kind of scarier fashion, as kind of a call and response on the right. Now, I mean, obviously, identity politics, as we know, has always been in American history, right? And I know this is a little bit tangential to our main conversation, but I think it really is important, right? Because I think in many ways, this is kind of what's been causing unease in you and me, what probably drove you to write these essays in some large or small regard, is this feeling that how closely or not you identify with your Mexican Egyptianness, again, whatever that means, is in some ways becoming a tribal symbol of your political allegiance. And I think that that makes a lot of people deeply uncomfortable. It certainly makes me uncomfortable because I don't like feeling like I have to perform for someone to make them feel like I'm authentic or not. Yeah. And I actually think 
one, it's not even accurate. And this is why we are so surprised when things like 27% of Latin American men voted for Donald Trump in the United States. Because, And then we're like, what? How did that happen? One, because we don't actually have an accurate perception of what people think because they're a certain identity. We have a made up one and that's called the power of narrative. And we should probably talk a little bit more about that eventually. But I would say we have this fictional idea of what it means to be a person of color in this country. And we've created it in order to create a political coalition that's more effective, in my opinion. And when it turns out that that is not necessarily based on reality, the first thing that we do is say, oh, well, that's because they're white adjacent, or oh, that's because they want to be white, or oh, that's because they have they've been assimilated too much or however you want to phrase it rather than understanding that opinions within identity groups are actually extremely varied and that that's a good thing we don't want to flatten people to be identical based off of their racial or ethnic heritage so i definitely think that we are inaccurate in our view of the fact that we think people think alike because of a certain background i mean i think that you're clearly a student of history, and we don't have to go that far back to see how a broken narrative can affect how we view the world when we filter everything through it, right? I mean, when a patriarchal system, you know, of, I think this more applies to the past, but it can apply even now, but let's go back, you know, to the 1940s and 1950s, right? And if you have a patriarchal system that views women a certain way and tells a narrative about women, then everything that they do and all the things that they say and how they act will be viewed through that lens rather than through their own agency. So when women want to go work in the workforce, you know, ah, that'd be in difficult. You know, these broads are always wanting more, you know, blah, 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 right? But that narrative is false, right? The things that kept women out of the workplace, the things that kept them from having the right to vote, the stories that we've told about black Americans and why marijuana was made illegal and quote unquote jazz cigarettes and all these other things, right? Like we have so much past history that shows us that we will continue to make errors when we filter everything through a single, all-encompassing mono-narrative, that we're going to miss a ton of actual diversity that is happening in society, and we're going to harm a lot of people. And I think that what's happening right now, which you just astutely pointed to, there was a double-digit leap in Latino support for Donald Trump between 2016 and 2020, and a lot of that was happening along the border. There's this famous statistic, I can't remember exactly what it was, the numbers, but it was on a border town. It was only a few thousand people, but it swung to Donald Trump by like 30 or 40 percentage points between 2016 and 2020. And if we only look at life through the lens of POCs versus whites, or Latin Americans must all hate Donald Trump, and the build the wall rhetoric is going to deplete his support with Latinos, then if that's how you view the world, you have no way of explaining those phenomenon. Mm -hmm. You are literally just depriving yourself of it. it. It's kind of like how, quote unquote, doctors would bleed patients with leeches because they believe that getting the poisonous blood out of someone while they were sick would heal them. And then they'd be surprised when their patients never got better and usually died from blood loss. But if that's the only thing that you're viewing the medical world through, you're never going to understand why your patients keep dying. I'm actually even more cynical than that, I would say. So... I vacillate between thinking that people are well-intentioned or thinking that they understand what they're doing and are trying to execute it because they know the consequences. And so fundamentally, like when it comes to the power of narrative, 
key who holds the narrative holds the power, right? And if you've been left out of the power structure for so long, which is so evident about by POCs in America specifically, then one way of gaining the power is to change the narrative in your favor. And so sometimes I'm like, are we seeking truth or are we just trying to change the narrative? And I'm a little cynical because when I talk about the kind of fake by POC coalition that's put together, I only mean that half-heartedly. I don't think it's fake. I just think they pushed this narrative for so long that all by POC people have the same interest because it's an interest predicated on being marginalized by the white supremacist state of America that then they can't explain why some people are going to vote with the white supremacists, right? I mean, quote unquote, white supremacists and scare quotes here. But I would say... The idea is that they push the narrative so they could be a coalition, so they could gain the votes, right? That we all needed to work together because that's how you shift power. So I do think that there is a little part of me that's like, oh, I think they just want to be heard, right? But then the other part of me is like, no, they understand that he who controls the narrative controls the power. And since they need more power, they need to control the narrative. What better way to control the narrative? Block out the alternative voices who will not make film stories and documentaries, which continue the narrative that you want, that you think will shift the power. Does that make any sense? Yes, absolutely. Identity-based coalitions are as old as time. And they're, as you said, can be valid in many instances. When, and I don't like overusing this phrase because I don't like the implications of it, but when marginalized communities, whether it's women fighting for the right to vote or black Americans fighting for their civil rights and, and opposing redlining and other things, like, of course, you have an entire diverse community of either 50% of the United States in the case of women, or a very diverse group of now 40 plus million people who identify as African American, who are incredibly different, mm. but they identify under that banner to mm -hmm. promote change, right? But where it gets messy is when you take that label beyond just the act of activism in which it can be useful and then begin talking about an earnest commonality across incredibly diverse people. That was the lie of whiteness, mm -hmm. right? Like if we're being totally honest, yeah. why are my Armenian ancestors and my Irish ancestors both considered white? Mm -hmm. It's because you make the group larger in order to oppress people who are not white. Any student of history can understand the history behind whiteness, which was to create a fictional coalition that people can be admitted into so that other people can be excluded from. And so if we can understand that that coalition is really based on nothing more than a fiction, then we can also understand that even if people being under the BIPOC umbrella, right, people being considered POC in order to agitate for representation and rights, which I think we would agree are good things, if you stretch that too far, and try and make it into a real and lasting common community, mm -hmm. it's just as much of a fiction as whiteness is. And I think that that's something that we need to be very careful to guard against. Yeah. And I actually, I think a lot of people got frustrated from that line in my first piece, Decolonize the Documentary, about how I associate far more with my sense of reasoning and my moral philosophy of life. Love that quote. But I think it frustrates people because it challenges and confronts their version of how to unify as a group of people, right, fundamentally. And I don't like marginalized either, by the way. I, pr I used to prefer minority group, but I think it's passe. But I, minority at least is like a number and marginalized makes me feel kind of unequal. And 
I would say that a lot of marginalized people need unification of numbers to, you know, assert themselves like there's strength and power or power in numbers. And so I think when I say something like that, they get a little bit sad because they feel like they're losing one of their numbers, right? And instead, I want to say, yeah, but there's only one way out of this mess. The one thing I learned from being half of one ethnicity and half of the other ethnicity is you can't identify too strongly as one because it will come at a cost to the other and they're both valuable. And it's the same. And then also like, not only are they both valuable, they both matter less than they think you do because those are subordinate to the totality of your person. And so I guess we become poor foot soldiers when we stop identifying as like a race or gender first, and then we start asserting ourselves as individuals. But at the same time, I think that's the real key to looking at another human and saying, hey, I see you're the same as me, right? You're not that different. If you flatten them, and then you make them more different, then I think you just put a division in there. And I think that Ultimately, since race is a social construct anyways, we'd be better off attempting to let that go to some degree. At some point, we have to make the decision to not continue to abide by the social construct if we want out of it. But they make it so hard for you to decide not to abide by it anymore. Everyone does. Both the people who like the system because it serves them because maybe they're white or they're male and the people who are not served by the system, but it gives them a sense of solidarity and community around which to build and fight back. Yes. And I think that it makes me sad to hear what you just said because I relate to it, right? I relate to the fear of your colleagues that by you writing something like that, that they have lost a potential ally. But that's such a such a narrow way to look at allyship because it implies that you wouldn't be there fighting side by side with them if they were agitating for more representation or trying to support a filmmaker who comes from a an underrepresented background and was trying to get their start. When I imagine, just based on the kind of films that you make and the writing that you do, that you would be right there alongside them promoting that. And so I think that we, just like you said, I really am just repeating <laughs> your own fantastic points back to you, but it, it is worth saying that these two things do not have to be in conflict. Yeah, You wanting to be identified as an individual who is not just winnowed down to her race and gender does not mean that you will not stand side by side with people who are trying to get more representation for people who have historically been underrepresented because of their race and gender. We have to help people understand how these two things are actually not in conflict, but are harmonious. What you're saying of not being judged by those two things is completely in harmony with you not wanting people to be judged by those things anymore, which they have historically been, which has kept them out of filmmaking. Yeah. And I also, I take a two-pronged approach in my profession while I'm out here writing, let's make sure and not restrict people from speaking on things that we think they're unqualified to say. I actively seek out and hire a diverse crew for all of my shoots because I want to put money and opportunity in the hands of people who maybe overlook sometimes. And it's not the first thing that I look for when I try and find a crew member, but I always try and cast resumes wide or put notifications of job opportunities that I might have in communities where I know I'm going to pull back resumes and I know people are qualified already. So sometimes it's not about not being able to find a qualified person. It's just about whether or not you have cast the net wide enough so that when you 
find people, you're like, oh, okay, these are great talent that then I can include along my way. And so I try and do both of those things, because I don't want people to think, oh, I'm just a naysayer who says identity politics sucks. I'm a little bit of a naysayer to be sure. But at the same time, I understand the opposite point of view. And I think the most meaningful way to have change is to Put your money where your mouth is, hire people, include people, understand the value of diverse communities, not because someone may be black and your subject is black, but because you need to hire people who are diverse and provide opportunities for them and make sure that they rise through the ranks and that they accumulate power. Well said. (laughs) I couldn't have said it better myself, so I won't. Before we move on to our final question, which I ask every guest, I want to ask, what are you up to right now? What are you working on? I know it's been kind of a a slow year for a lot of folks in the entertainment industry, at least my friends here in Los Angeles who were away from film sets for an extended period of time because of COVID. What are you working on? What are you and Dominic working on together? What's next for you? Yeah. So it's actually funny that you asked because I was listening to some of your previous podcasts after you first reached out to me just to get to know who you are and what your point of view on the world is. And I saw that you came across somebody who represents an organization, which is part of one of my films. And in keeping with the uh, my desire to depolarize, to be less judgmental about people who are not like you. I'm actually starting a film. Actually, I already started it. We're in production on a feature documentary about the conservative movement for good climate change policy. And I saw that you had Quill from ACC on your show. And while he's not a protagonist in our film, the person who started that organization, Benji Backer, is. And the film is really interesting to me because I think it demonstrates how there are people out there that are willing to do what they know is right and galvanize change from within their own tribal organisms that they belong to. And I like that because I feel like that resonates with me. I don't plan on abandoning the left just because I might have some friendly criticism for how it might improve. And I think that people who do that are really interesting. And plus, I make films about the environment. And I think that that's really interesting that there are people who are out there who are actively trying to get other Republicans to care about climate change and adopt policies that will mitigate its effects. Yes. I was drawn to ACC and Quill and Benji for that exact same reason. I think that, and Quill said it in the episode, I think that there are certain criticisms that when you hear them from your own side, you are more willing and apt to absorb them. And certain topics that you can talk about when it comes to, let's say, climate change, for instance, that you're going to be more open to hear if they're coming from someone on your team, which I think is important and relevant to the essays that you've written for persuasion, because you're saying it as someone from the quote unquote left, and you're trying to point out a problem that you see that is becoming ascendant, and you articulate very well the reasons why you think that it's not the right road to go down. And I think it's very important and not to pad your ego too much here, but I think it is very important that you're saying this is someone who practices what she preaches, whether it's casting a large net to find a diverse crew or promoting the works of others who have maybe not had their voices heard historically. I think that it matters that you are forging pathways that you think are more holistic and better responses to the issue of representation while you are critiquing 
what is currently becoming a more popular view, which I think you and I both agree is not the right way to go. So before we get to our last question, I just wanted to point that out. I think it's important. And I think what you're doing and how you're practicing your career in film uh, is very relevant to the podcast. And yeah, I just really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Jonathan, for taking an interest. This was my very first podcast. I feel like I made a mess of it, but hopefully people were able to pick out useful tidbits of what it means to tell a good story, why stories matter, how stories are relevant to this world, and why we need to keep them open and able for people of all sorts to tell them. Yes. And for anyone interested in seeing some of Nadia and Dominic's work, I highly recommend they go to encompassfilms.com. Their films are entertaining, insightful, oftentimes quite short, uh, which, you know, in our modern age of limited attention spans, I think that can sometimes even be a plus. Uh, There's a fantastic documentary about the Memphis Rock Climbing Company that is only 13 minutes long and it is chock full of really insightful moments. So, highly recommend that anyone who's interested in what Nadia has to say to check it out. So I'd love for us to get to our last question, which I ask every guest. And I think it is very relevant here because it is embodied by the work that you do. So as individuals, Nadia, we're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. So is there someone, Nadia, or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Mm, That is such a great question. I would like to offer my empathy to anybody who feels like they have something to say out in the world, but no way to say it, that they have a point of view that isn't heard. I think that comes from both sides and it has to do with everything that we're talking about and why we're even fighting over who can tell whose story because it already originates with this idea that people don't feel they've been heard, right? And they want to be heard and they think that being heard will lead to change. And so my empathy goes to anyone who feels like they haven't been heard. I think that includes unlikely characters who are starting to speak up now, maybe in more subversive ways and feeling the heat. And I think it goes to people who have done the work a lot for a long time and have paved the way for people to speak up. Well said. And thank you again, Nadia, for the essays you've written, the work that you're doing now with your films. And thanks for the time that you've given us today. Thank you. Thank you.